Good morning again. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Genesis. We're going to be going back to the beginning for the summer. We're going to be studying the book of Genesis, specifically the Abraham stories uh, in Genesis 12 through 22. So we'll be looking at Genesis 12 through 22 through the summer, and then in the fall we'll be studying the book of Romans, which is kind of a big heavyweight book in the New Testament. So we're looking forward to that, and we're preparing for it by studying Abraham. A lot of the logic and a lot of the argument of the Apostle Paul in Romans is built off of the life of Abraham and the faith of Abraham. So we're calling it this uh, summer, Father Abraham, as we look at his life. Um, Jews consider Father Abraham their father by blood. Uh, Muslims consider Father Abraham their father by blood uh, through a different line as well. But Christians consider Father Abraham father by faith. So both Romans and Galatians make it clear that we are sons and daughters of Abraham if we have faith, because Abraham also had faith. Abraham had faith in this promising God. Um, We're going to be studying chapter 12 today. We're going to be focusing in on verses 10 through 20 this morning. Uh, Stephen Watson and I, who I want to thank for preaching the last couple of weeks, are doing a little tag team with our sister church in Kempner Watershed Church. So if you don't know about this church, we helped to plant it two years ago with Kyle Black, um, and we fill in preaching over there sometimes as well, try to share resources as much as we can. Uh, So Stephen and I divided up chapter 12. I gave him the happy part, and I took the sad part. So I just want you to know how generous I am that I took the negative half of the chapter. So we're going to be tag teaming. He's preaching uh, the first part of it over there this week while I'm preaching today, and then next week I'll take this and preach over there, and he'll come back and give you the beginning of the story. So just know before we read verses 10 through 20 that there is a very happy, positive part of this story that you'll hear about more next week, and that is where God comes and makes promises of grace to Abraham, that God's going to use him to bless the whole world. And we, from every tongue and tribe, from every neighborhood, from every color, from every language, we're the results of that. We're the results of those promises of grace that God made to Abraham thousands and thousands of years ago. We're the fulfillment of that now. So we're going to be reading chapter 12, verses 10 through 20. We're going to see that after God made those promises of grace to Abraham, Abraham was like, sounds great, I'll follow you, God. And then in our section, he, he wanders off the trail a little bit. So let's read it, verses 10 through 12. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, then they will kill me, but they will let you live. So say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abraham. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Um, Just a little side note 
The names in the story are Abram and Sarai. God later on, we'll get to this later in the summer, changes their names to Abraham and Sarah. Um, So I'll probably use both names back and forth just out of habit, just so you're not too thoroughly confused as you see the slight variation in the text. Um, Let me pray for us and we'll ask God to help us today. God, we pray that you would meet us here. We thank you for these stories. Um, And God, we we see a, a great cultural gap, a distance of time, um, history, a different place. We pray that you would mediate that, that gap by your spirit, that you would help us to see what you're up to. You would help us to see that we're people just like these people, that you're at work, at work now just like you were at work back then. Uh, we pray that your, your spirit would help us to trust you, to see who you are and see how good you are. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we think about Father Abraham, uh, it occurred to me that many of us have this tension that we live with where we wonder if we will relive the positive traits of our father or the negative traits of our father. Do you ever wonder that? Uh, maybe you're in the middle of it right now. Maybe you're trying to fight some negative habits or negative traits. Maybe you're trying to fan into flame some positive habits. I would say the answer to that question of whether or not you will fulfill the positive uh, and negative traits of your father is yes, right? I mean, that's the simple answer. Yes, it'll be both. So sorry about that. That's good news and bad news, I guess. I was thinking in, in uh, the history of great literature, there was this great film that came out in 1980 called The Empire Strikes Back. Have you ever seen this film? Uh, there's uh, been a sequel that's been made, a few of them, I guess. And uh, so it's kind of come back into the culture's mindset lately. People are thinking about it again, but really it's a motif throughout the movies, all of the movies, but it was hit really hard in this particular movie. But this motif is the whole father-son idea, right? Prophecies of the son's going to be like the father, will the son be different than the father, and who really is the father, and who really is the son, and they've kind of stirred up that whole motif again in the new movie, right? Everybody's wondering, well, who does this kid belong to, and whoa, oh my goodness, I can't believe that kid did this, you know, and all this stuff. In the original movie, there's a scene where Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker are fighting, Serious fight, lightsabers are whirring around and everything, and there's this dialogue back and forth where Luke Skywalker is screaming at Darth Vader and says, I know that you murdered my father. And Darth Vader says, I am your father. Sorry, spoiler alert. And uh, someone in the early service actually said, what? And just shouted it out. And I said, thank you, that'll be one of my great memories of preaching for the rest of my life. So Luke is fighting this great evil, and he recognizes that this great evil is his father. Well, as I I joked earlier, Stephen's getting to preach the happy promises of grace text this morning over at Watershed Church while I'm preaching the negative Father Abraham did the wrong thing text. Our dads do great things, and our dads do bad things. And here, the father of faith strays. He goes off the path, so to speak. And so A lesson of reading the Old Testament is we do not and should not imitate every single thing the fathers of the faith do. That's just an important lesson. When you're reading your Bible, you don't read your Bible and say, oh, Abraham sold out his wife. I should sell out my wife. No, it's a bad idea. You shouldn't do it, right? So you don't go reading stories in the Bible looking for things to imitate. Sometimes there are things to imitate there. It's not that you should never imitate anything in the Bible, right? The New Testament says there are things to imitate. You should just be very careful about that. And just know that's your kind of Sunday school impulse. Your impulse is just to say, 
everything anybody ever did in the Bible is right, and I'm just going to do those things. No, don't do them. A lot of bad things that are done in the Bible. So we want to imitate his faith, but we don't want to imitate when he doesn't have faith, right? When he struggles. First thing I think we need to look at here is the context of the story. So since we're starting a new series, we're looking at Abraham, uh, we want to think about the context for Abraham. What's the context? Where does the story come from? So again, this is the first book in the Bible. The first book in the Bible is called Genesis, uh, and that's a term that just literally means beginnings. That's what Genesis means. Uh, And so it's the book of beginnings, and this book tells us about the creation of the world. We have this uh, almighty creator who makes all things, and in chapter 1 and 2, he's making the world, he's making people, he's saying it's good. So we know in this story that the created world, human beings, animals, sunsets, it's good. God made all things good and glorious and beautiful. And that kind of coincides with what we see in the real world, right? We see there's, a, there's something kind of cool about human beings, right? There's something awesome and glorious about us, and there's something beautiful about great sunsets. Anybody of you see the, the sunset last night? I was going to the store last night, and I was just like, this is where I live in, why I live in Texas, right? Like, this is it, you know? In August, I'm going to be crying about it, but it was beautiful, Last night, I was just like, it was just like this red, pink, like just incredible color you can't describe. It was just gorgeous. Um, when we see these things, when we go to other states and see tall trees, you know, just when we see these unusual things, we say, God created the world and it's good. And that's what chapter one and two tells us. But we also know by our own experience, by the sickness and by the relational brokenness that we live in, we also know there's, there's bad stuff in this world. The world is, is broken as well. And we see that in chapter 3 of this story of beginnings. Chapter 3 says that Adam and Eve were told by God, trust me, enjoy all the good stuff I made. Here's paradise. Go after it. But hey, don't do this one thing. And the serpent says, you know what? God's holding out on you. God doesn't have your best in mind. He knows you'll become like him. You'll get too smart. You'll get too uppity. You'll be like a God yourself if you take this fruit and disobey God. And so Adam and Eve break relational trust with God. They say, we don't want to trust God. We want to trust ourselves. We want to do our own thing. And that plunges the world into brokenness. That's the story of beginnings. And so really the whole Bible is replaying that story. That the world and everything in it is good and God made it for his glory. It's supposed to reflect how good he is. But it's also broken because of our sin, because of our desire to go our own way. Our desire to do our own thing. But God is a saving God. He makes a promise in Genesis 3.15, Eve, someday there's going to be a son that you're going to have, a descendant someday that's going to save the world, that's going to crush the serpent, that's going to crush evil once and for all. So there's this promise that God is gracious. God clothes them. God is making things better. So all these elements are at work in this story. That's the context immediately, Genesis 1 through 11, but it's also the broader context of the whole Bible. My question for you is, do you know that context? Do you understand that story? Sometimes we like to use shorthand for it and say, creation, fall, redemption. Do you know that basic structure of the story? Creation, all things are good. Fall, we've messed things up. We've sinned. We've done our own thing. Redemption, God's going to fix it, and he is fixing it. Now, we see that obviously most clearly through Jesus. He is the great fixer, but even in these Old Testament stories, we see God coming in and intervening and bringing redemption. That's part of what we'll see in the story today. A couple of little linguistic things I want to point out for you that 
were interesting that I found just reading, reading commentaries and studying up on the passage this week is Genesis 3 through 11 uh, repeats the word curse five times. And then in Genesis 12, the, the part verses 1 through 9 that Stephen's going to preach on next week, we see the word blessing repeated five times. So commentators say, you know what, that's a clue for us. These early stories were read um, out loud more often than read in Bibles, right? Not everybody had a pocket Bible and an iPhone Bible and 10 copies and five translations. You know, back then there would be a few central copies and people would read them or tell them from memory. And so you would hear these clues as you would hear a whole, you know, two-hour telling of the stories. You would hear these clues. You'd hear, ah, curse, 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 blessing, blessing, blessing. So we want to keep that in mind as well. That's part of the context of what God is doing here in the story. There is a curse because we've done our own thing, but God is bringing blessing, and he's going to be doing it through Abraham. The other thing that I want us to pay attention to when we think about context is uh, the first audience itself. Remember, from what we understand, the first complete packaged edition of the Old Testament was written by Moses for those Exodus Israelites, right? So if we go back in time, they knew these stories, right? Some of these stories were around. They knew them. They remembered them. Some people tried to forget them and write their own mythologies and make up their own stories about God. But a lot of people in the ancient world knew these stories. They knew the truth. They told the stories. But this edition that we have, from what we understand, Moses is the one that put it together when he was bringing um, the Israelites out of the, uh, the Exodus, out of Egypt. And so the first audience were the people that just got saved out of Egypt. They were the first ones to hear this story as it is told in these details. I just think that's an interesting thing to pay attention to as well. Because here in this story, we have Abraham going down to Egypt. We have plagues. We have Pharaoh. We have Abraham being pulled out of Egypt. And so what that tells us is that God puts these things in these stories. Not that he adds them that they're not true, but these things are worked into the stories that help us hear through these echoes of key words. He helps us to hear, oh, that's like me. I'm like those people. So the first Israelites who just got rescued out of Egypt are thinking, they're perking up, right? They're thinking, oh, some, some stuff like this happened with Father Abraham. And I, I hope we hear those same kind of echoes ourselves, right? Like, I hope you hear, oh, Abraham was stupid. I'm stupid too, right? I mean, like, I hope you are able to connect with the text and recognize in context that, that these are people just like us. And there are these echoes of things that happen in our life that are the same kind of things that happened in their life. And then finally, New Testament context, again, centers us that Abraham is the father of faith. I'll just read real quickly, Galatians 3, 7 through 9 says it this way. Know that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So Galatians 3, 7, if you're not sure, you know, you're like, well, I'm not a Muslim, I'm not a Jew, what am I? Well, if you believe, you trust in Jesus, if you trust in what he's done for you, you are also a son of Abraham by faith. If you believe, you're also a son of of Abraham. Verse 8 goes on, says, the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, uh, which means all the non-Jews like us, right? All the other tribes, all the other colors, all the other combinations of, of human races, God's going to save all of them. And scripture foresaw that. And it says, scripture preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith, right? So the gospel is preached beforehand when God told Abraham, everybody's going to be blessed through you, Abraham. 
How is that the gospel? We tend to think of the gospel in like hyper-specific ways. We tend to think of the gospel as the very specific words of Jesus dying on the cross for your sins, rising from the dead three days later. I would say that is definitely the gospel, but the bigger kind of more vague general picture of the gospel is God's going to save you, right? You've messed everything up with your sin. God's going to save you. I mean, that, so that's a more general gospel that was definitely preached beforehand in the Old Testament. Trust God, he'll save you. We know the details now in Jesus. How is he going to do that? He's doing it through Jesus. Jesus took our sins upon the cross. Jesus rose from the dead, conquering sin and death. So when God looks at you, if you trust him, he sees you as, as perfect, as clean, as delightful as Jesus himself. He, he's pleased with you through Jesus. God is happy with you in Christ. That is amazingly good news. And that good news was beginning to be preached beforehand, even in the Old Testament, that God can be pleased with you again because of what God will do. Not because of anything you're doing, but because of what God will do. Trust him. God will take care of it. So I have a picture here of a family tree. How many of you know the names of your great-grandparents? Anybody here? You, 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 you. Okay, a few of you do. Very good. I have to tell you, though, more people in the first service knew the names of their great-grandparents. What about your great-great-grandparents? How many of you? Oh, in the back. All right. A few of, a few of you. Okay. So some of you do. How about your great-great-great-great-great-great-grandparents, right? That's Adam, I think. Um, I think that's how I don't know. I start to lose track of the math. But there comes a point where you don't really know your roots anymore. You don't really, you know, you kind of run out. You're like, oh, well, that was the famous person. I didn't go back any farther than that. You know, you just kind of stop maybe in your family research. This summer, we're going to have an opportunity to research our family history. What's really cool is we're going to see we're all tied together, right? I mean, we've got individual family histories of your people that came from this country or that city or this area or this neighborhood. We have this universal family history. We all come from Adam, who didn't trust God, who failed. And by faith, we all come through Abraham. Romans 5 says it real simply. It breaks it down even more simply. It says there's basically two races of men. There's sons of Adam who sin, and we're all born into that. And then there's those who are part of the tribe of Jesus, who loved God, who trusted him perfectly. If we trust in Jesus by faith, we are seen to be in Christ. He loves us. He's delighted with us through him. So this summer, we're going to get a chance to really Think about our family tree. Who do we belong to? Where do we come from? What does it mean? How should we live because of this family heritage that we have? My first question, again, I asked this earlier, do you know the story? Do you, do you understand the, the bigger context of creation, fall, redemption? Can you read the Bible and make sense of it? Um, I encourage you to go, go deep and really dig in certain parts of the Bible, but I also encourage you to back up and read the whole thing through. It's really helpful to read it all through. I was telling you earlier, a great tool is chronological Bibles. I really recommend those for people that have a hard time with the historical order of things being kind of confusing uh, by a chronological Bible, by a good study Bible, try to read through the whole thing, but also then go deep in places uh, like Galatians or Romans or like as we're doing this summer, just looking at the stories of Abraham. Go broad, but also go deep and begin to understand uh, what Jesus is saying to us in the scriptures, this picture of creation, fall, redemption. God's made all things good. We've messed all things up, but God is coming back to rescue us. It helps us to put things in their proper place. Um, the other thing that I notice, and Stephen will hit on this more next week, is that Abraham is a good example of being blessed so that you can be a blessing. And I wonder if you have that same connection of faith with Abraham as well. 
Do you understand that like Abraham, you're called out of the world and you're sent to be a blessing? That you're blessed by God to be a blessing. A lot of us just want to be blessed, right? And I know me, I'd just rather focus on being blessed, but God is calling you to be a blessing. So my challenge is, how are you being a blessing? In this story today, we see Abraham failing. And so that's why I bring it up, because I know I fail, I know you fail. Sometimes we, we wander and we focus on our own being blessed instead of being a blessing to others. I'd ask you to pray, I'd ask you to ask the Spirit uh, to show you how some of those things need to change in your own life. The next thing I want us to see then as the story unfolds is Abraham's flesh, the flesh of Abraham. I use this word on purpose because in the New Testament, flesh is contrasted with spirit. Um, And because all things are created good, we know that flesh is not automatically bad. That's a Greek Gnostic philosophical idea that flesh is always bad. In the Bible, flesh is good. It's just bad when we depend on it too much. It's bad when we make an idol out of our flesh. And so a way you can describe the way the New Testament uses the term flesh is the strength that you naturally have. It's like depending on the natural you. And the natural you has some weaknesses, right? Like I can't organize anything to save my life. Um, But you also have natural strengths, right? I'm pretty good with people. That's a strength of my flesh. And I should use that to bless others. But when I depend on it as my salvation, things are out of line, right? When you depend on your strength, the strength of your flesh to be what fixes everything, then you're not really trusting in a savior anymore. You're, you're trusting in your flesh. You're trusting in yourself. And so we see this dynamic here in the story. I want to read again to you verse 10. We start with verse 10. We see something that seems very obvious here. In verse 10, it says, now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there for the famine was severe in the land. So, so what does that mean? Let me just say up front, I would hope that if you lose your job, you'd go out and find another job, right? I would hope that if you run out of food, you would go to the grocery store and buy a new food, more food, right? Um, if you're running low on money, that you would find a way to get more money, right? I, I would hope that you would be common sense, responsible people that t- would take care of business. And so at one level, most of the commentators, when they look at the story, they're saying, yeah, it's kind of an obvious thing for him to do. Like he was running out of stuff. He didn't have food, and so he just went down to Egypt. There was food there, right? And so we need to wrestle with, I guess what you would say is the subtlety of the text or the nuance of the text. It's not a super black and white thing. It's not like a, it's always wrong, thus saith the Lord, to ever go to Egypt for anything. Like that, that verse isn't in the Bible. So there's an echo of, yeah, some bad things happen in Egypt. You know, so we should be thinking that. But we should also recognize, but, you know, when you don't have food and they have food down the block, you should probably go down the block, right? Like that just makes sense. And so that's the dynamic of us being enfleshed people. We have gifts. We have strengths. You know, you have resources that God's given you to use for your health and wealth and happiness, but also to bless other people. And sometimes... We're to use it in a common sense way, and other times we're to say, wait, God, what should I do here? There's a problem. I'm not sure. And so what some commentators point out is that there seems to be a very fast movement here where Abraham just kind of rolls from uh, being told, I'm going to send you to this new land. He's like, okay, I trust you. He goes to the new land. He checks things out. Uh, He sets up some tents. He sets up an altar. He calls on the name of the Lord. He moves to another county. 
he moves to another county, he rolls on to Egypt. I mean, it's just like, it's just a very clipped pace in the way the story is told, verses 8 and 9 and 10. So commentators and people that know a lot more Hebrew than I do say, uh, this is really told in a very fast way. The Hebrew is written in a way that says, yeah, he rolled really quickly from going where God told him to going somewhere else. And so I think the way that story is written is not saying that it's always wrong when you run out of food to go where food is, but it's implying that he didn't ask God what's the next step. And so that's what I want to press on you. I want you to feel that tension of sometimes following your common sense is exactly the right thing to do. But you should ask God. You should pray. And I struggle with that. I'm I'm telling you this because I think God is telling me this through the text. Sometimes I think when it's obvious, I don't need to pray. Do you ever think that? When it's like, there's no more milk. I need to go to the store and buy milk. I mean, that's just, like, you don't need to pray about that, right? But I think the scriptures are pushing us, especially when we look at the context of Genesis 3, where the fall happens, there's this trust that's been broken. There's this relational fracture where human beings are not trusting God. We're not calling out to God. So God makes promises to Abraham uh, in the earlier part of this chapter, Abraham follows him, Abraham calls out to him, and then Abraham stops calling out to him and goes to Egypt. So I think we just need to feel the tension of it's hard to know when we've crossed that line. And I think the story is purposely told in a slightly blurry way because we should struggle, and in our struggle, we should call out to the Lord. We should say, Lord, it seems like I should do this. What should I do? Will you guide me? Will you help me? Will you send me wise counsel? Will you show me through circumstances? Will you, will you teach me in your word and help me to know what I should do with my life? So we don't want to live with this like deathly afraid, oh no, I'm going to do the wrong thing. I'm going to fall out of the will of God. But we also don't want to live with this kind of cold, hard, black and white common sense. I always know what's right. You know what I mean? And typically by, by temperament, we fall into one of those extremes or the other, don't we? We need to live in the middle where we're asking God for guidance. We're asking him to direct us. We're asking him to tell us what to do. There was a great book I read years ago by John MacArthur. And I think the name of it was uh, God's Will, colon, Found. I think that was the name of it. But the idea was there's all these people struggling to know God's will. And MacArthur was like, hey, I found it. Read my little book. You'll be okay. Because a lot of us worry about it. We're like, man, what is God's will for my life? I don't know if God wants me to wear blue socks or green socks. And we get all twisted up about it. And MacArthur is really helpful in this book. I like a lot of his stuff. Some of his stuff annoys me. But I I like a lot of his stuff, and this book is really good. This book is really helpful. He says, God's will for your life is sanctification. That's God's will for your life. You know what that word means? Sanctification means to be uh, sanctified. It, It means, very specifically, to be made holy. It means God's will is to make you more holy. God's will, specifically, it says in the New Testament, is to make you more like Jesus. Things didn't always go well for Jesus, so sorry, that's the bad news. But we believe it's it's good in the long term. So God's will is for you to be more like Jesus, and God's will is for us to ask him for direction, to have a relationship with him where we call out to him. So as I said, there's a tension here where it's hard to tell exactly if it was wrong or right to go to Egypt, right? But we would definitely say he should have at least asked. He should have at least asked God if it's okay. Now the text gets more clear. There's kind of like a, a uh, shifting of gears. The text picks up speed here. So it goes from, hmm, I'm not sure about Egypt. Maybe God, maybe Abraham should have asked to, okay, that was really wrong. Okay, so look at verse 11. 
When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Um, So just an aside, we can talk about this afterwards. She was 65, but she was so gorgeous that Abraham was going to get killed for her, right? Uh, And I know there's some tensions in our mind with that. We can talk about that later if you have questions about that. But let's just take it at face value. She was drop-dead gorgeous, uh, or murder Abram gorgeous, right? And uh, so he says, say you're my sister that it may go well with me because of you and that my life may be spared for your sake. Now, um, this is a lie. Everybody points out this is a lie. All the commentators agree. But it was, it was only a half lie, see, because she was actually his half-sister. Again, another thing I don't really want to talk about. We can talk about that more afterwards. They had some different practices than we do today. So she was actually his half-sister. So it was kind of a half-truth. But as you can see, the way the story unfolds, he's not justified in telling this Half-truth. A half-truth is still a lie. So he goes on and says, Say, my sister, then I'll be spared. Verse 14, when Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. She was gorgeous. Verse 15, when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. So she's now just been taken as a member of his harem. She's a harem member or a new princess or a concubine or whatever you want to call it, one of Uh, Pharaoh's playthings. Verse 16 says, And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. He had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. Y'all ever watch these these game shows or Oprah or these kind of shows where like cars are given away and you're like, that would be awesome, wouldn't it be? Have you ever watched that and you've thought? Or like the uh, Extreme Home Makeover where they're like, you get a new free house. You're like, yes, why can't that just happen to me, right? Um, I have a picture here of Steve Harvey giving away a car. I think this is a Bentley. I think that's what it is. Whatever it is, it's a fancy car, right? I don't even know what a Bentley is, but I would gladly receive one, right? (laughs) And uh, we've all had those moments when we thought, yeah, that would be great, right? Just get some new stuff. I want to point out that Abram is getting this kind of stuff. This This is this moment in Abram's life. The story is unfolding. Abraham goes somewhere where we're like, Should you be going to Egypt? I'm not so sure. And then he starts lying, and he sells out his wife, and then we're more sure, right? No, you shouldn't lie. You shouldn't sell out your wife. You shouldn't do this. But he's getting, like, Bentleys and Rolls Royces out of it, right? He's getting camels and oxen and sheep. I mean, it's just listing out all this stuff that he's getting. He's getting enriched. So so the moral of the story so far, if you read the Bible with a just imitate whatever they do in the Old Testament lens. If that's your lens for reading the Bible, here's the story. I'll, I'll reframe it. It's lie and cheat, and you will have your best life now. That, that's the moral so far. Lie and cheat, and you'll have your best life now. I think we're supposed to feel a tension of, huh, maybe best life now is, is not the main goal. Again, going back to what we referred to as our Our uh, goal in life, God's will for your life, is maybe sanctification. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's trusting God. Maybe it's walking with God and obeying God. Maybe he wants you to have your best life later instead of your best life now. If your goal is best life now, depend on your flesh, sell people out, stab people in the back, good chance you'll have your best life now. You can collect a lot of things that way. Scriptures actually tells us to trust God, to obey him, 
and trust him for our best life later. Some days it'll go well, some days it'll go bad. We're not guaranteed anything in this life, but we are guaranteed more than we can ask or imagine in the next life. And it's worth it. And that's the story of Scripture. So I want to encourage you to think about what, what is it in your own life that causes you to tip over from, yeah, he's moving to this other town where there's more job opportunities. I'm not sure if he should do it. It's hard to say. It's a gray area. To, yeah, he's lying and cheating and selling out his wife. That's definitely wrong. What causes you to tip that scale? Martin Luther always said that the reason you break any of the uh, lower nine commandments is because you've already broken the first. The first commandment is you shall have no other gods before you. So there's a good chance that we could look into the story and say Abraham's God at this point, earlier part of the chapter, was clearly Yahweh, the God that calls him out and makes promises of grace. But he's, he's leaning back to this old God of prosperity and riches and camels and wealth and self-preservation and surviving this difficult ordeal of a famine and not getting killed when he goes to Egypt because his wife is so gorgeous. So really it's her fault, right? Because she's so beautiful. And, and so he's struggling to, to trust these other gods, to have another God before him besides the real God. So Luther says, whenever that happens, then boom, 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 all these dominoes fall. We start breaking other commandments. That's why we lie. When, when you lie, when I lie, we, we lie because we want to get stuff that we think is better than God himself. When we commit adultery, it's because we want something that we think is better than God himself. When we murder, it's because we want something better than God himself. And God says, no, I, I'm the best. And so remember that. The same Again, the same family pattern that we see in Father Abraham, we live out ourselves. We live out ourselves. So my question for you is, um, what's the thing that would attract you? What's the Bentley that would make you lie? What's the false God that would make you break the other commandments? That would make you cheat, steal, sell people out? Break these other laws that you've always said, I'm not that kind of person, I wouldn't do that. But under the right circumstances, I might. What are those circumstances? And that's a good way to sniff out what that false God is in our life and to recognize, you know what, God, God's better even than that. Even than that. Wealth, camels, sheep, Bentleys, whatever it might be, God's better even than that. And that's really the only thing that will help us stop lying, stop cheating on our spouses, stop murdering, stop stealing, is knowing that God is really worth it, that he's worth it. When we know that, when we believe that, when we trust that, uh, we're really trusting, again, more in our best life later and less in our best life now. And so what we see as the story unfolds, he gets all the good things by cheating, lying, stealing, selling out his wife, but that's not how God wants him to live. And so again, God's will is your sanctification. Sometimes you mess that up and God has to intervene, right? Has that ever happened in your life? You're just kind of cruising along, trying to do what you think is best, trying to enrich yourself, and you end up in a pit? And God has to rescue you from your own wealth, from your own independence, from your own blessings, because they're the wrong blessings. And that's what we see here in this story. We see the Savior of Abraham. Who is Abraham's Savior? It's not Abraham. This story shows that Abraham's not pulling himself up by his own bootstraps. This story shows us that this great man of faith is falling on his face and needs God to pick him up. Look at uh, verse 17. Verse 17, it says it this way. The Lord, but the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. 
So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you've done to me? Why did you tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. This story, again, echoes the Exodus. We have plagues on Pharaoh's house. We have the people of God being sent out. We have God supernaturally, miraculously intervening, breaking in and rescuing. We see the difference between the father of our faith being his own hero and God being the hero. This text shows us that God is the hero. God is the Savior. Abraham's not the Savior. So my question for you, and this is a hard question for me, as well. Do you want to be your own savior? Or do you want to trust God to be your savior? Again, another confession, I want to be my own savior a lot of times. I want to save myself. And God lovingly and patiently teaches me, you can't do it, Dave. It's not going to work. He often brings me to hard places where I fall on my face, where I realize and wake up again to the reality that I can't save myself, that I need him to intervene. Have you learned that yet? in your life. I want to encourage you that that it's not worth it. It's not worth trying to save yourself. It's better to turn to him and ask him for help. God's so gracious, even even when we don't, he comes after us. So that's the amazing thing. Does Does that inspire you to sin all the more? Paul says, may it never be. No, the grace actually inspires us to trust him. A God that would love us that much, that actually inspires us to trust him, to trust him more. I hope it does for you. It does for me, when I see this story, um, one of my favorite illustrations to use is the detour. Any of you, this happens a lot now with, um, for some reason, like Bell County has been targeted. Every city in Bell County is under construction with the roads right now. Um, but when you come upon a detour, how, how does that make you feel? Does that make you feel happy or sad um, or angry? I was confessing earlier, I'm one of those people that hides my anger really well. I always come across as very happy. But when I see a detour, I am secretly and quietly seething inside, right? There's this deep pit of anger welling up within me because I want to go where I want to go. I want to do my thing. And sometimes God puts a detour up and he says, no, go, go the other way. We have plans. We make plans. We say, God, this is my plan and it's going to be great. You, you better cooperate. God says, no, I'm, I'm God. I get to make the rules and we're going to put up a detour here. And he tells us to go another way. That's what God is doing for Abraham. It's often what he does in our life. And so again, I think we can connect with these stories of, yeah, great promises of grace. I resonate that with that. But we also see yeah, failures and detours and missteps and tripping up. And, and we're going to see a lot more of that this summer in the story of Abraham. Abraham was a guy like us who sometimes God put a detour sign up and said, I'm going to take it in a different direction. And again, I want to encourage you to, to trust God in the midst of those detours. You may have a really great plan worked out in your mind. But one of the things I really struggle with is when God changes my direction of just kind of telling my original plan over and over again in my head. Do you ever do that? But, oh, it was going to be so great, God, if you would just let my plan see the full fruition. And we need to trust him and say, no. I've, he's saying, no, I've got something better for you. Trust me. Trust me. So, so stop telling your plan over and over again. Stop saying, I wanted to go north and you made me go west. Just say, okay, God, I trust you. You're taking me west. Now we're going east. I trust you. I'm going to follow you. You're good. 
And we know he's good because he's proven it over and over again, but most clearly he proved it in Jesus. As we think about these cool literary echoes, it's interesting. Um, There's another uh, lying and betraying his wife story that's going to come later on in the Abraham stories. And then it gets replayed in his son Isaac's life. So like I said, this gets replayed over and over again. And of course, we have the literary echo of the Exodus itself. They go into Egypt and then they're rescued out of Egypt in the Exodus through plagues on Pharaoh's house. And Matthew in his gospel makes it very explicit that these echoes are supposed to remind us of Jesus himself. So there's all these literary echoes that are fulfilled in different ways throughout Scripture, and it helps us to see that, for one thing, God's just a really good writer, right? But also it helps us to connect the dots and kind of see the picture we're supposed to see that God is still saving us. And here again, this other story, he's still saving us, and he's still saving us. And so we see these pictures, but we see in the Gospel of Matthew that it's most clearly fulfilled in Jesus. Matthew says it real explicitly. I wrote down the the text here if you want to write it down. It's in Matthew 2.15. He says, Jesus and his family had to escape to Egypt because Herod was trying to kill him. And then God brought them back, and he said, this was to fulfill Hosea 11.1, where it says, out of Egypt I will call my son. God just puts these cool little literary echoes throughout the scriptures, and we see all of them are tied together in Jesus. All of them are fulfilled in Christ. If you skip over the other gospel to the gospel of Luke in chapter 9, verse 31, It's what's called the transfiguration. And in the transfiguration, Moses and Elijah appear out of heaven, and they are glowing with this incredible glory. And Jesus is glowing too, and the disciples are completely freaked out. And it says that Jesus and Moses and Elijah are having a chat. And it says they were discussing his uh, departure that he was about to accomplish. What's really cool is when you read that in the Greek, the word is exodus. So I wish they would just translate that into the English for us. It says that Moses and Elijah were talking with Jesus and saying they were discussing the exodus that he was about to accomplish. So we've got the exodus in the Old Testament, right? Book of Exodus, great story. I encourage you to read it. We've got little mini exoduses like here where God's rescuing Abraham out of Egypt. But we've got the exodus. I hope you get that. The exodus is the one that Jesus accomplished for you. It's not your slavery to Egypt. It's your slavery to your own self. It's your slavery to the idols that you think will fulfill you but betray you. It's it's your slavery to your own sin. And Jesus accomplishes the exodus out of that slavery by his death on the cross for you. Where the New Testament tells us all of your sins are placed on him. Put to death. By faith in Christ, we are united with him so that when Jesus rose from the dead, we are risen with him. Scriptures tells us that, that God sees us as united with Christ. God delights in you. God loves you. He's accomplished the ultimate exodus for you through Jesus. And, and just to tie the knot up one more level, we're wrestling with how good of a father Abraham is here. Earlier we sang in our worship set that, that God is the ultimate father. He is the good, good father who loves us. And our identity is rooted in in not just being sons and daughters of Abraham, who was a stumbling, bumbling guy like us who ultimately trusted God, but our identity is ultimately rooted in God being our Father. God accomplishing the exodus to adopt us as his children through Christ. He's the good Father that we can always trust. 
I want you to remember that. You're going to face ups and downs. Things in your life are going to get far worse. Things in your life may get far better. But on either day, you can trust that God is good. That, that Romans 8 that tells us all things work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Those words are true. Because God is a good father and he loves you more than you love yourself. Let me pray for us and then we'll respond and worship together. God, we thank you that you are our good father that loves us more than we can love ourselves. We thank you that you've accomplished the exodus for us in Christ. We thank you that we are children of Abraham by faith, that by trusting you, we're just like Abraham who received these great promises. And you're saving all of us, no matter where we come from, no matter what we look like, we're a part of your family. Thank you for doing what only you can do, rescuing us from our own sin and selfishness and brokenness. Help us to live in a new way. Help us to be this new community that loves others because you've loved us first. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.